Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. My name is Jeff. Uh, welcome to Renaissance. I'm one of the leaders here. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be reading in Genesis chapter 41 today. Genesis chapter 41, jumping back into our study of the book of Genesis. We've been studying Genesis for a number of months now. We took June off to do a little different series, but we're back into Genesis. Um, And as you turn there, oh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback black Bible underneath the seat close to you that you can use. And you can pull that Bible out and you can turn to page 34 in that Bible. That'll take you right to Genesis chapter 41. And if you don't own a Bible, we want to give that to you. So that's a gift to you. I say this all the time. We don't want to add to your collection of Bibles that you might have at home. But if you don't own a copy of the scriptures, then take that home with you. You can write your name in it and use it. Um, I was thinking about this earlier. I've read a lot of books in my life, right? As, as have many of you. But no book has had a greater impact on my life than the Bible. And I say that not because it's, it's magic. It's not magic. It's not spells or nothing. But it, it truly just gives us a picture of God. The Bible, we know, is, is God's words for us. And so we learn a lot about who he is. And we learn a lot about ourselves when we read the Bible, too. So if you don't have a copy of one, uh, the scriptures, take that with you. Um, but as you're turning there, I just want to do a, an unofficial poll. How many people here have actually ordered food, probably pizza or something, off of an app on your phone and then went to pick it up? Anyone? It's a handful. Right, uh, the, the, the nine o'clock's definitely an older congregation. No one did that there. They're like, apps, what's an app? <laughs> anyways, <laughs> dang, threw shade at the nine, didn't I? So anyways, uh, but I, I've done that as well. But I, I remember the days when you, when you wanted to order a pizza from a pizza place, you actually had to call them. And you know pizza places, they did the same thing. It doesn't matter when you called, doesn't matter who you called or, or nothing. As soon as they answered the phone, they said, thanks for calling pizza place, whatever, uh, will you please hold, click, and put you on hold before you could even say no. You could even say, no, I don't want to be on hold, thank you very much. Um, but they put you on hold, and you sit there, and you wait, and you wait, and you're assuming that they're taking care of the guy at the counter or the other guy on the other line who called right before you. I don't think they're doing that at all. I think they knew it was you, and they just put you on hold. That's just how I think. Or how about those times when you had to call your insurance agent or maybe Comcast to fight over 20 cents on your bill or something? And you're like, what? So you call and they put you on hold. And you like took your lunch break just to take care of this little thing. And they put you on hold and 30 minutes go by. 35 minutes go by. And at this point, you're like, I'm going to be late to work because I'm staying on the phone until I can talk to someone. And then the first thing that you want to tell them is that you've kept me on hold for 40 minutes. What is wrong with you people? I say that story because as we begin to study back in Genesis chapter 41, we're continuing to study of a man named Joseph. And Joseph had an interesting time in his life where it's almost as if his life had been put on hold and he had been seemingly forgotten. Um, But before we get there, can I pray for us? I forgot to pray for us at the nine and it felt kind of, I felt like I didn't have any pants on. So it felt kind of weird. So (laughs) 
I'd much rather have pants on. Thank you very much. So let's pray. God, we thank you for our time together. We ask you, God, that you would help us to understand what your scriptures would say to us. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, and we ask that he would open our hearts, he would open our minds, that we could receive the very words that you have for us today. God, we thank you for everything that you do, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen, amen. amen. All right, so uh, let me catch us up a little bit on the story of Joseph. So Pastor Joe, a number of weeks ago, when we, before we took a break from Genesis, he told the story of Joseph, who, um, if you remember, he was the youngest, one of the youngest brothers of like 12 kids, and the older brothers didn't like him much. In fact, the Bible tells us that they hated him. And they primarily hated him because he was so loved by his father. He was one of the favorites of his father. And because his brothers hated him, they sold him into slavery for some silver. They saw some people traveling through. They said, there's Joseph. Let's get rid of him. We'll tell dad he's been killed by a wild animal, whatever. But they sell him off. He finds his way all the way to Egypt. And yet in the middle of all of this uh, struggle being sold into slavery by his brother, uh, the, the brothers, the Bible tells us that God was with Joseph. He continues to remind us that God was with Joseph, even when circumstances seemed to appear to be the the other way, like that somehow God had abandoned him, God had left him, but God hadn't abandoned Joseph, even though his circumstances were dire and difficult. And that would be an encouraging thing to some of us, because we oftentimes think that, that God is with us when things are going well for us. The sun is out, it's 82 degrees, but when things are going difficult for us, difficult seasons medically, financially, relationally, that somehow God has abandoned us. And that's not necessarily true because God was with Joseph even when he'd been sold into slavery. Fast forward a little bit, he finds his way into the home of a man named Potiphar. Potiphar worked for the king Pharaoh. He was kind of a chief guy in his cabinet, if you will. And because God was with Joseph, Potiphar saw that everything that Joseph did went swimmingly. It went great. So he decided to leave Joseph in charge of his entire household. Sounds great. One day, Joseph is in the house, and Potiphar's wife comes wandering through. And she had this thing for Joseph. The Bible tells us that he was uh, good to look at. He was good in form and beauty. I guess much like me. Thanks for noticing. But he would... (laughs) Eh, You're like, I don't know. But... Potiphar's wife comes around and sees, sees Joseph, and she wants to lie down with him. For the kids in the room, wants to take a nap with him, if you know what I'm saying. And, and anyways, so, but Joseph, who wants to honor God and love God, decides to not do that and, and continually pushes off her advances until one day we learn that the, all the men in the household are gone. It's just Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And she grabs a hold of him and says, I want you to lie with me. And he runs out of the place, leaving behind his shirt that she has a hold of. She then takes that shirt as evidence against Joseph, leveling false accusations against him that somehow he tried to take advantage of her, that he was trying to use his power and authority over her and lie with her. Now, of course, when her husband Potiphar comes home, he does what every good and loving husband will do when he finds out someone else tried to take advantage of his wife. He goes nuts on him. He takes Joseph and throws him into prison. And he stands in the catacombs of the prisons of the Pharaoh, the king, and he stays there, and he stays there. Even though he's never had a trial, he's never been convicted of anything, he's just thrown into prison. Joseph is there for a little while, and we read later that two other prisoners show up. 
was a chief cupbearer and a chief baker. They worked for Pharaoh the king, and there's been some insurrection of sorts in the king's palace, and he thinks people are trying to kill him, so he takes his wine press guy, the cupbearer, and the bread maker, who, if you're going to kill a king, you poison him, right? So he takes those two guys, and he throws them into prison with Joseph. And while they're in prison with Joseph, the Bible tells us that this interesting chain of events take place. They wake up one morning, Joseph looks at them, and he sees that the, the cupbearer and the baker have this sort of downtrodden look upon their face. They look troubled. Their souls seem to be disturbed. Joseph asks, what's wrong, guys? And they say, we've had these dreams, kind of weird dreams, and they're disturbed by them. They don't know what they mean. And the worst part is, we're in jail. We're in prison with you, a Hebrew, and there's no one here to interpret our dreams. Joseph says, oh, that won't be a problem at all. You see, God, in fact, is the interpreter of dreams, and I know him, he says. Why don't you tell me your dreams, and let's see how this thing will play out. So the cupbearer comes before Joseph and gives him this dream. Sounded something like this. When I was dreaming, I saw a vine with three branches coming off of this vine. And on those branches were large clusters of fruit and grapes. And they became ripe and fell to the ground. And my hands sweeped down to pick them up. I crushed them into a goblet and handed it to Pharaoh the king. I don't know what this means, Joseph. And Joseph goes, well, let me tell you. And God gives him the interpretation of this dream. He says, the three branches represent three days. And he says, in three days, Pharaoh, the king, is going to install you back into his service, and you will once again be serving him wine. But before you leave this place, I want you to do one thing. In three days, when he comes to pull you back up into his court, will you just, will you just remember me? Will you just remember what I've done? Will you remember that I've done this for you? That would be wonderful. Thank you very much. And he says, sure, why not? And then the, the baker sees that the cupbearer got this wonderful interpretation. He's like, ooh, do me, do me next. And he, he tells him the dream. And he goes, I got three baskets on top of my head filled with all kinds of baked goods for the king. But on the top basket, there's birds, ravens or crows or something. And they're eating all of the baked goods for the king out of this basket. What does it mean, Joseph? And Joseph says, well, the three baskets like the branches uh, represent three days. But unfortunately, in three days, the king is going to come and demand your head. And those birds that are feasting on those baked goods are actually the same birds that are going to be feasting on your flesh. You're going to die in three days. God bless you. And he leaves him. <laughs> I don't know how you end that interpretation. <laughs> right? And so that happens. And because God was in the middle of that, the interpretations of these dreams were true. It came to pass, the cupbearer returned to the king, and the baker was hanged. And then in the very first verse of chapter 41, we read these words. After two whole years, after two years, Joseph is still in the prison. You ever felt forgotten? You ever been left on hold, right? That, is, that pales in comparison to what Joseph was enduring. For two years, he sits in prison. The cupbearer has been reinstalled back to the, the king's cabinet, and he's just waiting and waiting, hoping that he would remember him. And he never does. And then all of a sudden, we learn that this king, the pharaoh, also has some dreams, and his dreams are waking him up from his sleep. He has these crazy dreams about cows and corn. I'll tell them to you since you asked. He has this dream in the Nile River. He sees uh, seven sleek, fat, healthy cows come up out of the Nile River, and they're feasting upon the reeds in the Nile. And then right after he sees those seven healthy, fat, 
juicy. Mm, cows. He sees seven sleek, thin, sickly, ugly cows. They come over and then they devour the fat cows. That's the strangest thing you could possibly imagine. And it wakes Pharaoh from his sleep. What does this mean? That's the strangest thing ever. And then he dozes back to sleep again and immediately has a second dream. This dream about corn or grain. He sees a stock come up with seven heads of grain, plump and juicy and wonderful, ready for harvest. But after he sees those plump heads of grain, he sees seven withered, blighted heads of grain come in. And then they too come and devour the, the plump, juicy heads of grain. And it wakes him up again. He's like, I have no idea what this means. He calls forward to his throne all of the magicians in his court, asking anyone to interpret this dream. Can anyone tell me what this means? He knows it means something. What does it mean? And the cupbearer, as if a light bulb went off, he says, oh, um, Excuse me, sir, king, do you remember a couple years ago when you thought I tried to kill you and I really didn't? That was the baker guy. Well, I was in prison with this Hebrew, a Semite. His name was Joseph, and we had dreams one night, and he interpreted our dreams. Maybe he's still in prison. Let's go get him and see if he can help you. And of course, bless you, of course, the king is willing to do whatever is necessary to get an interpretation, and he sends for Joseph, and there he is sitting in a cell alone, wondering if everyone, including God himself, has forgotten him. He comes before the king. The king says these words. He says, I hear you know how to interpret dreams. Joseph, in great humility and honor to God, risks going back to prison when he says these words in verse 16. He said, it is not me who interprets dreams. It's not me. And the king could have said, enough with him. Send him back to prison. But before he could be sent back to prison, he utters these words too. But God can give Pharaoh a favorable report on these dreams. So hear this. The humility that Joseph has, who understands that the interpretations belong to God, who has given him the dreams anyways. And he says, I can't interpret your dreams, but I know God can, and I know who God is. So let's give it a whirl, shall we? So anyways, Pharaoh tells him these dreams about the cows and the corn. And, and Joseph, with the Spirit of God inside of him, begins to interpret. He says, those seven cows who were fat, those seven heads of grain who were plump and ready for harvest, that represents seven years of plenty. Seven years of super abundance that Egypt is going to have more than it could possibly ever consume in a year. Lots and lots of extra food. But the seven blighted ears, the seven sickly and thin cows, they represent seven years of famine. And what he's saying in Egypt, and God is telling you, Pharaoh, this is going to happen. He's given you two dreams so you'll understand this. God is setting this in motion. Seven years of superabundance immediately followed by seven years of famine. And then, and then Joseph does this thing that's so great. He not only interprets the dream, but then he, he slides across the table a suggestion to him. May I remind you that he's filled with God's spirit, and I think it's God himself who's saying these words. He says, Pharaoh, what you should do. Oh, nobody tells Pharaoh what he should do. He says, what you should do is find a man who's discerning and wise and set him over all of the land of Egypt. 
and in these seven years of superabundance, have that man collect a, a fifth of all of the extra and store it up in storehouses all throughout the nations, in the cities, out in the country. Store up a fifth of, of the 20% of the superabundance for seven years. That way, when the famine comes, there'll be enough in the storehouse to sustain life for your people. Pharaoh considers it for a moment. He looks around the room, sees all of the failed magicians who couldn't help anything, sees the cupbearer who's, let's be honest, not very trustworthy, to be honest with you. And he says to himself, Where, wherever shall we find a discerning and wise man? And then he looks at Joseph. And it's at this point I want to pick up the story. So let's start reading in verse 39 of chapter 41. It says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, and there is none so discerning and wise as you are, you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. He's saying you'll be second in command. Check from prison to prime minister in an afternoon. This is wonderful news. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his own hand, and he put it upon Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and he put gold chains about his neck. He's saying, you are one of us now. You're a part of this team, this family. You're one of us. Um, and he says he made him ride in the second chariot, and they threw a parade for him. And they called out before him, bow the knee, bow the knee. Here comes Joseph, bow the knee. And then he set him over all of the land of Egypt. And moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. You will be in charge of everyone. No one will do anything unless you command it. He changed his name. You can try to pronounce that on your own. He gave him a wife. It's not a name I'd name my daughter, but that's okay. And anyways, uh, verse 46, and then it says, Joseph was 30 years old. Moses gives this interesting detail, which I think will come into play later. So put that in the sticky part of your brain. But Joseph is 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh the king. And so Joseph goes out from the presence of Pharaoh, and he went through all of the land of Egypt and know this, he does exactly what he suggested Pharaoh should have someone do. He collects all of the surplus for all of these years. And immediately after the years of surplus comes the famine that he prophesied or that he said would come. He said this is, and when that famine hit, all of the people in Egypt were able to come to Joseph and to buy food, to buy grain. In fact, the Bible even tells us that all the people of the earth came to Egypt to buy food. What's interesting, this, this very um, drought or famine didn't just affect Egypt, but it affected Joseph's own hometown, the land of Canaan, where his brothers and father still were. The famine hit them, and at some point they caught word that there's food in Egypt. We should go down and buy some. Spoiler alert, they come to buy food from their brother Joseph, whom they sold in slavery a few years ago. That's for next week. But when we read this story, I have to be honest with you. There are some things that I think God would want us to know. 
And I think that the first thing we should understand, what I would call the the low-hanging fruit, the easy thing to apply to our lives, is I think God would want us to look at Joseph's life and see an example of a life that we should live. That he's shown us Joseph's life, who in the middle of temptation decides not to do the sinful thing and, and lie down with Potiphar's wife. In the midst of temptation, he decides not to do that. And even though he'd been given great authority, he does not abuse that authority. Can I tell you what would have happened if they put me in the second chariot and they asked me to have a parade where they said, here comes Jeff, everybody bow the knee. Can I tell you what I would have done? Well, since you've asked, I will tell you. I would have said, excuse me, Pharaoh, bro, hey, on this parade, be okay if we swing by Potiphar's house. I have something I want to say to his wife. Remember me? Off to prison you go. He could have looked to the cupbearer and says, I I gave you one task. Please remember me when Pharaoh calls you back. For two years you forgot to... Uh, For two years you forgot about me. Back to prison you would go. Joseph does none of these things. He humbly knows that this interpretation came from God. He knows that God is placing him in this position. It is out of no merit of his own does Joseph, again, go from prisoner to prime minister in an afternoon. It is not him. He knows this. It is God doing it. And so in this narrative, in this story, we see the picture of Joseph as an example of someone to model our lives after. But there's something greater in this story as well. There's the hope that we can find that when we feel abandoned or lost, that God has not forgotten us, has not abandoned us. And not only has he not forgotten us, but he is strong enough to help us in our situations. Again, he pulled Joseph right up out of prison immediately. Now, this is important, especially if you're God's people, Israel. And Moses is telling you this story, right? Moses wrote this, the book of Genesis, and he's telling God's people, God will never leave you. God remembers where you are. I know things are difficult, but it's going to be fine. And Moses is telling them the story of Joseph as they wandered through the desert for year after year after year after year, wondering if they were ever going to make it to the promised land. This story of Joseph is a reminder that God hasn't forgotten them, that God is going to do the hard thing and bring them into the promised land one day. But there's so much more to this narrative, and I would argue to all of the narratives or stories in the Bible that this is not just a parable of sorts, a story with a good moral ethic to learn and sort of inculcate into our lives. This is something greater than that. These stories, these narratives in the Bible, and I would argue all of the Bible has one primary goal, is to teach us about God. I mentioned earlier, when you're reading the Bible, please try not to read yourself into the Bible because the Bible is not about you. Say it with me. The Bible is not about me. It's okay. You said it in your heart. I saw that. It's fine. (laughs) The Bible's about God. And so when we read this story, we're learning about who God is. I mean, Joseph's great, and what God did in his life is an encouragement to us. But this story is about God. And notice first what we learn about God in this story. There's this doctrinal idea of providence. Have you ever heard of the providence of God? 
Know this, it just simply means this, that God will move anything, both animate or inanimate, on the earth to produce his will on the earth. What that means is God can control anything and everything, and he does so so that his will will be done on the earth. He even controls the weather. He told Pharaoh, seven years of superabundance, the Nile will produce more food than you've ever seen from God, and in seven years I will shut off the clouds this nation will dry up like a desert and nothing will grow. Nothing will live. God controls all of that. And God is doing so that his will would be done on the earth. So when we look about the providence of God, it's not just that he sees us and can help us, but he wants to help us. He desires to orchestrate things on our behalf. Oftentimes our culture tells us that God who created everything is much like a watchmaker who created this wonderful, intricate thing we call the universe and everything that there is, he wound it up somehow and, and tightened the spring to just push it across the table to let it run on its own accord. But that's not who God is. That's not what the Bible tells us. God is actively involved in the day-to-day -day dealings of our life. Someone say amen. amen. I just think we miss it. I just think we miss it. I think the subtle things where we see God's hand at work, moving, shifting, changing, orchestrating, we, <laughs> we hearken up to coincidence, happenstance. Every other thing except the loving hand of God, the creator of the universe, addressing things in our life. And when we're so quick to just call it something else, we begin to deaden ourselves, we begin to put... Uh, uh, Dark, darkened lenses on our glasses to actually see the work of God in our lives. That's why stories like this are so compelling and helpful to us because we can see what God, what God did in Joseph's life. We can see the providence of God in that story. And because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, if we see that in Joseph's life and in Egypt's life, then we can expect it in our lives, yes? We're not looking for it. We miss it. Maybe, maybe one of the greatest things out of today will just be, we'll have eyes to see, as Jesus used to say. That we'll have eyes to see the, the things that God is doing in our life. That there, there are no coincidences on this earth. If you're one of those people, and I used to be one of those people who believed in coincidence, just try this for a month or so. Just chalk it up to God. When that coincidence thing happens in your life, just say something like this, wow, God, that was cool. Wow, God, that was great. Wow, God, thank you for that. And you'll see how God is providentially providing for you and for those around you. So I think the story not only shows us a person to model our lives after, but it begins to explain to us who God is and what he can and cannot do for, for us, which is actually nothing. He can do everything he wants for us. The, the second thing I think we need to understand out of this story about God is that God loves people. I, yes, of course he does, right? Yeah. I paid for this. No, you didn't pay for this. It's free to come in. But listen, God, God loves people, and more importantly, he loves all people. A-L-L, -L, all caps, underline. That's how I put it in my notes. He, he loves all people. May I remind you, these dreams that he's given um, Pharaoh and what God is going to do in Egypt with the superabundance and the famine and all of the stuff he works out through Joseph to save the nation of Egypt, he does this and those people don't even know who he is. 
The Egyptians are polytheists. They worship the sun god, the Nile god, the frog god, the blood god, the everything god, except for the real God. And yet God comes in and provides for them in a way that they can't even fathom or get. God loves people. And he provides for people. Even those people who don't know him, believe in him, follow him, even those, I would argue, who are pushing against the will of God in their lives. May I remind you that these very Egyptians that God is saving through Joseph will but in a few short generations enslave the people of Egypt, or sorry, enslave the people of Israel, God's people, for over four centuries. For 400 years, they will be enslaved by these Egyptians, the very ones who God is saving today. To put that in a maybe modern cultural context, we might say this, God loves people. In fact, God loves those people who pray five times a day, plan a pilgrimage to a place called Mecca and call their God Allah. God loves those people. In my mind, there is a much larger amen in that. Can you believe that? That he loves those people. He, he loves other polytheists like the, the Buddhists who believe in karma and reincarnation and worship a multitude of different gods. And, and we say those words because we see how he's responding to the Egyptians here. They don't know who he is, and yet he provides for them. Yet he saves them. Yet he is providentially moving things around that they might remain on the earth. <laughs> I know that's a challenging consideration for us. When I was in college, I took a class called Man and the Environment. I don't know why I remember this. I just do. And I remember when we were going through a, a particular study or section on alternative forms of energy. Everyone knew at that time that coal, burning coal, was maybe not good for the environment, and et cetera, et cetera. So they had all these wonderful ideas. Why don't we try nuclear energy? That's a thing, right? And everyone was on board for this greener type of energy, this nuclear energy. They didn't put all that you know, stuff up into the ozone, into the sky, it, it, unless they wanted to put that, that nuclear power plant in their backyard. <laughs> right? You've heard this. It's called NIMBY, not in my backyard. It's the NIMBY effect. It's a real thing. You can look it up or not. It doesn't matter. So uh, everybody's okay with those things, and they believe them and all that, but as long as it doesn't happen in my backyard. And see, we can say things like this, that God loves all people. Yes, even Muslims, even Buddhists, and even atheists, even those people who really have no regard for him. And we can say those things, but we just don't want him to love them in my backyard. <laughs> He can love them somewhere else. It's not here. Oh, all right. I'll move on. I'll just leave that for you to wrestle over. But we see that, that God loves all people, that God um, operates in providence in our lives. And I think maybe most importantly, that the story of Joseph and this entire narrative here, it, it does something else for us. It helps us to see that when God is loving his enemies, so to speak, that he's painting a picture for us of his son Jesus who is to come. Did you know Romans chapter 5 verse 10 tells us this, that while, while we were yet enemies of God, he reconciled us to himself through the death of his son Jesus. 
See, you and I, some people don't want to remember this, but you and I at one point, we were opposed to the things of God in our life. Some of you became Christians when you were young. You don't even remember when you converted to Christianity because your whole family are Christians. And it's a little difficult for you to see that demarcation point when you said yes to Jesus. But I remember mine. I was 26 years old, and for many years before that, I was opposed to God's people. And I, in fact, I <laughs> uh, shouldn't laugh at that, but I even used to vandalize some of them. I made fun of them. I thought their belief in God was ridiculous. And yet, in the middle of all of that, God loved me, his enemy, and sent his son Jesus to reconcile me to the Father. When we see that picture of what God's willing to do through his son Jesus, then the picture and the picture of what God did through Joseph's life and the model that we have now in Jesus in our lives, it, it forces us to consider how we live on the earth. If God loves people, even his enemies, can we love people, even our enemies? In fact, Jesus takes this ethic, this social ethic, and puts it in the face of the believers in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, he stands before everyone and he tells them to love your enemies. I don't have the words for you on the screen, but can I read a few lines? I heard yes, I'm moving forward. So... This is Jesus. If you're visiting, Jesus is a big deal here. He's a big deal. And when he speaks, we listen. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was written in the Old Testament, but he has something else to say. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God does this. This is providence. He decides where the rain goes, and if it falls on evil people, it's his prerogative to have the rain fall on evil people, because they need rain too. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors and sinners do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than what the others do? Do not even the Gentiles do that? See, God is calling us to a different standard. And he doesn't just raise the bar for us and go, now try it. Good luck. Here's what Joseph looks like. Here's what Jesus looks like. Here's what God's done in the past with Egyptians, et cetera, et cetera. He's calling us to do it. And not just to strive and fail at it, but then he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can do it. Can't, I can't do this, though. I mean, I can't. I have a certain level of standards for my life. There are just some people I don't want anything to do with. And yet I have no right to that thought because of who God is. There are some in this room, maybe even in our own community, who think some people groups are not worthy of God's love because of an orientation that they have. Some would even argue because they voted Republican they're not worthy of God's love. Or vice versa. If we want to follow God's model in Jesus, in Joseph, and even the works of God himself, then we have to flex into some of this stuff. Now, I don't know what that looks like for some of you, and I'm not even going to try to paint a picture of what that might look like. I'm just here to poke at you for a little bit. I'm asking God to poke us awake. The 
the last and maybe most important thing is that this narrative and story tells us um, what Jesus looks like. You don't see Jesus' name here, but I'm here to tell you that everything that Joseph is is a mirror or a shadow of Jesus who will one day come. In fact, there are so many parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. If I were to read them down as a list, you would be hard-pressed to tell me if I'm speaking about Joseph or Jesus. You don't believe me? Let me try a few. You tell me if this is Joseph or Jesus. He was 30 years old when he was publicly acknowledged. He was the object of his father's special love. He was mocked by his family. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was stripped out of his robe. He was delivered over to the Gentiles. He was falsely accused. He was faithful even amid temptation. He was thrown into prison. He stood before rulers. He saves his rebellious brothers from death, which is what Jesus has done for us. He's exalted after and through humiliation. He embraces God's purpose, even though it brings him intense physical harm. He welcomes Gentiles to be a part of the family. If you're here at church or Renaissance and you don't know what a Gentile is, uh, let me just briefly break this down for you. In the Old Testament, they talked a lot about the Jewish people, God's people, the Israelites. They're the Jews, if you will, and everyone else is a Gentile. (laughs) So that's the easy way to think of it. Most all of us in this room are Gentiles, and God showed his love even to the Gentiles through him. He welcomes Gentiles to be part of the family. He gives hungry people bread. On and on it goes. See, what God is showing us in this story is that one day I'm going to send my Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, to the earth, and I do not want you to miss him. There's an example set by Joseph that when you see it played out again, pay attention to it, he says. And Jesus comes and lives a life almost identical to Joseph. The main story in this narrative is that we not miss Jesus when he comes. I want to pray for us. I want to have the band come back up. And we have an opportunity to consider and contemplate the things that we've heard. I prayed at the, um, in the 9 o'clock service some pretty risky prayers. Does anybody pray risky prayers? You're like, can you define that for me? <laughs> I mean, before I was married, I prayed for a smoking hot wife. <laughs> Got it. I'm just saying. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. But I prayed risky prayers this morning for the nine o'clock. I, I prayed that some people in the room have friends and family members that they're convinced are too far gone that Jesus can't save that God can't reach into their life and change them and turn them around and, and pull them back onto a course that's with God. And I know, that, I know that there are people in this service who believe that as well. In fact, there's a person standing in front of you who believes that and believe that about some of my friends. But I want you to hear the power of God. I, I prayed for a friend of mine, and I even said these words, God, he's so far gone, you probably can't even save him. And then fast forward, right, many years. Last year, I'm standing in a worship service. I'm worshiping Jesus with my hands outstretched, and that dude's standing next to me doing the same thing. See, the risky prayer was like, God, can you do something here? 
The, the risky prayer is like, God, I don't know what this looks like for my life, but I want you to show me how to love other people well. I want you to show me that when I'm in a uh, circumstance in life and it doesn't seem to be going my way, that you would remind me that you are still with me, regardless of my circumstance, that I still have you with me. And because of that, I'm blessed. That my blessing is not um, based on the circumstances that I'm in. Faith in Christ, I've been reconciled to God the Father. I have, a, I have a hope of eternity on and on it goes. And I'm praying for all those things that we would be awakened to understand them. Oh. And a friend of mine, a man who's been coming to this church, I bet well over four years, came up to me after service. Jeff, you got a second? No, I mean, I don't really. What's up? No, I do. Of course. Yes. What's going on? And he said these words to me. He said, um, I told him I needed him today. Four years he's been coming to this church and he got saved. He he received the gift that is salvation through Christ alone. He received it today. He said, I can't do anything on my own. I actually need help today. And he saw it. It's not for me. I'm not compelling enough to persuade anyone to believe these things, but I believe the power of God through his word and the power, and the power of the Holy Spirit can change people's hearts. I'm asking for that today. I'm asking for you to change today. I can't change you. I want to. I can. That's why these stories are so important. If you feel like you're Joseph in this story, that you've been abandoned by God, read this again and again and again. Out of no work out of Joseph did God exalt him into a high place. No work of Joseph did that. God alone did it. If you feel abandoned, know that God is paying attention and can pull you right out of that. If I were you, I would, I would pray risky prayers that God would do it. If you have friends and family members that you want to come to Jesus, pray risky prayers for them. God, save them. Save them. There's this part in Corinthians. I'm so, off note, so far off notes, it's ridiculous. There's this uh, part in Corinthians where I think someone is acting a fool in the Corinthian church. And Paul walks up to him to the leaders in the church. He's like, you need to take that idiot and throw him out. You need to throw him out so Satan can chew on him for a while in hopes that his soul would be saved. That sometimes people just need to hit a level of um, despondency to be awakened to the very beauty of who God is. I don't, I don't pray that for anyone in this room, but maybe some of you need that. God would know. Good luck to you. God bless you in that. Can we pray? God, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Without which we have no hope of eternal life. We have no hope of achieving the measure of ethics that Joseph and Jesus lay out for us. We have no hope to be the person that you want us to be. We have no hope to affect change. We have no hope to overcome sin in our lives. We have no hope to change God without you. But because of your son, Jesus, willing to come and to 
be punished and to absorb the penalty of sin, which is death upon a cross, even though he had never sinned before. That he took the punishment for my sin, for your sin, for everyone's sin, died upon the cross, was buried in a grave, and God, you raised him from the dead on the third day. And now through faith in Jesus, we too have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of overcoming sin, death, and the grave. And it is the beginning of a new life. Oh, to be born again, to try over, to start again through Jesus is what we need, Lord. God, help us to be less narcissistic and make it all about us. Help us to be reminded that you love other people (laughs) too, even those who don't look like us. God, I thank you for renaissance. I thank you for our time together. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.